Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 92. The Brewers decided when they left Los Angeles with their tail between their legs, getting swept by the Dodgers. They said to themselves right then and there, we're not going to lose a game the rest of the year. So far, so good. Eight-game winning streak coming out of that sweep at the hands of the Dodgers. Who saw that coming? They sweep away San Diego for the first time since 2003. They are 16 games over 500, and a gargantuan series with the Cubbies starts at Wrigley tonight. Second to last series between those two teams. We'll talk about all that. The preseason is in the books. Jordan Love, again, pretty solid in a win against the Seahawks. It was Alex Magoo with a dime at the end of that game to get the Packers back in position to eventually retake the lead and get the win. We will talk about that as well as get to number four on my personal top five Packer Bear games. We had number five on Friday, number four today. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20. Gordon, 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, face hit the Snap. He looks, he throws, it's and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a tentacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, I hope everybody out there downloading the episode had a great weekend. It was a really good teaser fall weekend in southeastern Wisconsin. Cloudy on Saturday, mid-60s, upper 60s. Little sun, little warmer on Sunday. But I got to work this morning a little after 4.30, and it was 49 cool, crisp degrees. It was perfect. Hoodie, shorts, Crocs weather. Or hoodie, shorts, flip-flops. That used to be my go-to. It is the perfect weather for that start. We're talking football. We're doing football countdowns. Packers, Bears, Badgers play this weekend. Number 19, Wisconsin. First game in the Fickle Era. Well, I guess second game. Who got the win when they won the bowl game? I'd have to go back and look and see what the official records were. I guess I assume Fickle got that win. That was weird. I If we ever get Luke Fickle on the show, if we ever blow up and we get a Luke Fickle interview, give me three minutes, Luke, three. I'd be curious to hear how that all went at the bowl game. I cannot recall that ever happening where a new head coach – takes the reins before the bowl game and then is kind of the proxy head coach for the bowl game, but not really. He's on the sidelines, but not doing a lot of coaching. It's not his staff. They aren't his players. Ultimately, that was weird. I think that's officially a Luke Fickle win, though. I don't think that's a Jimmy Leonard win. We've got that coming up this weekend. The Brewers are red hot. We're looking at October baseball. Hopefully, we're not counting any chickens yet. It's just got a great feel here on a Monday morning. And we did have, by the way, a great time at the Lumineers show. We talked about that on Friday's podcast. And, bonus, nothing bad happened in terms of a global virus shutting the entire world down like happened the last time we saw the Lumineers, March 11th, 2020. 
my wife and I were talking about that when we were getting set to get into the Summerfest grounds on Saturday. By the way, we had never been to Mexican Fiesta. I've been to a lot of the ethnic festivals. They have one, gosh, almost every weekend or every other weekend on the Summerfest grounds in Milwaukee. We've been to German Fest many times. We've been to Festa Italiana many times. We've consumed a lot of meatballs at Festa Italiana. We've done Irish Fest, which is okay. Irish dancing is pretty entertaining. The drinks are always good, but Irish food, I don't know. Potatoes, just a lot of potatoes. No, I don't mind potatoes, but that's just it was a lot of potatoes. We've done that one, but I have never been to the Mexican Fiesta. I actually wasn't even aware of it until we found out that the Lumineers show coincided with Mexican Fiesta on the Summerfest grounds. And let me tell you something. <laughs> the Venn diagram between those attending the Mexican Fiesta and those attending the Lumineers concert, not a whole lot of crossover there. It was two very different groups of people, which is good. It's fine. That just added to the amount of people that were down there. I have never seen the Summerfest grounds that jammed in. It was nuts to butts as far as you the eye could see. I've been to packed Summerfest nights. I've been to packed ethnic festival nights. Festa always brings in a really big crowd Friday and Saturday. I've never seen the crowds that big. And it was unfortunate because we were trying to figure out what to do for food on our way down. Should we stop somewhere, eat before we leave, whatever. When we found out that that was going on, and I think it's the longest of all the ethnic festivals, too. We learned that when we were down there. Almost 50 or 60 years they've been doing that one. When we found out that is going on before the show, we said, all right, we'll leave a little early and we'll get some Mexican food. We'll get some tacos or some Mexican street corn or whatever. We'll do that. And then we will go and sit tight with a bunch of people. They'll appreciate that. The people sitting next to us (laughs) hammering a ton of Mexican food before we sit down. A bunch of refried beans and whatnot. That's what we thought we would do. We got there, and it was apparent. There was no way we were going to be able to get food and get to the show on time. The show was 7.30. We didn't really care about the opener, James Bay. But we got there at about 6.30. You could tell right away as traffic started in Milwaukee and the parking situation. We thought, oh, boy, this is a lot more people than I thought we were going to see down here. It was a sellout for the Lumineers. That's 25000 As we were walking around the grounds, I would guess... 80,000 people were there. Perfect weather off the lake on Saturday night. They had wrestling. They had luchador wrestling, too. That was kind of fun. I would say they probably, at their peak, had over 100,000 people on those grounds. We started walking, though, to try to find a line to get into, and it became obvious, look, we're going to be in a line for half an hour or 45 minutes. Then you have to wait for your food, then slam your food, and then walk to the other side of the grounds. It just didn't work out. We ended up having a crappy burger right outside of the amphitheater. There are three standalone restaurants that are kind of open. It depends on how packed it's going to be. Because the Lumineers show is sold out, all three were open. There's a pizza place, a cheesesteak place, and a burger place. We got a $14 overcooked hamburger on a dry bun, which is what you get when you buy food right by the venue. It was a really fun show, though. And, yeah, no global virus that took over the world during the course of the show. We count that as a win. God, I remember, too, when we got back from that show in 2020, I want to say it was two or three days later. If you worked in radio at that time, and I still have this letter in my office, I think I'm going to frame it at some point. I can't imagine I'm ever going to see anything like this again. Working in radio, we got a letter from the Department of Defense. That was the moment, even with all the other cancellations and the NBA and Major League Baseball and international flights and all the stuff we talked about on Friday. That was the moment when our market manager came to all of our studios and gave us actual letters from the Department of Defense that we needed to have on us. They they said to us, have these in your car in the event that we end up in some weird military 
purge-like shutdown, <laughs> which is what we didn't know what direction we were going at that time. If we end up in a situation where it's crisis lockdown mode, you are allowed to drive to and from work. And if you were to get pulled over, you would have to show them this letter from the Department of Defense. I sat at the studio for about five minutes just absolutely gobsmacked that that was something that was happening. I have a letter from the Department of Defense somewhere in my office. I'll have to frame that. It was a fun time. I hope you guys had a good weekend, too. The Brewers had a great weekend. Holy cow. The CC Sabathia night, that was awesome. We were watching that on TV. We tuned in just in time to see the ceremonial first pitch. Doug Melvin, still a really good mustache, still a really good cookie duster on that guy. He caught the ceremonial first pitch from CC. CC looks great. CC looks like he's dropped probably 80 pounds since his playing days. They had him in the booth in the third inning, and that was the inning they turned things around offensively. I don't remember a lot of CC interviews from 2008 or post-game interviews. He's a really, he could be a color analyst. He is a really well-spoken, gregarious guy, at least at this stage of his life. He was a ton of fun. I didn't realize he worked for the league now, too, as some kind of liaison between Manfred's office and the players and trying to find ways to have better ties there. He's doing that sort of part-time. Uh, they were talking about that year, and it was just awesome. And then when he was in the booth, it was a nothing-nothing game. They score five runs. They miraculously score five runs, a crooked number, with a Rowdy Telez big home run off of the injured list, a big Rowdy Telez home run to boot. What a fun night. 7-3 to three win on Friday. Then on Saturday, we were at the Lumineers show. I was trying to keep up to date on the ESPN score app. They were down early and put another crooked number up. They had a five-run third inning on Friday, a five-run fifth inning on Saturday. That got them in front 5-2. to two. Carlos Santana had a big hit in there. He's been really solid the last two weeks now. Him and Canna both. Canna had a good game on Saturday. Canna was very productive on Sunday as well. That was a big part of it. They get the win 5-4. to four. Devin had to come on and close things down, gets his 31st save. Freddie Peralta gets the win on Saturday. Not as shut down as he's been, although that standard's hard to meet. He's won his last five starts, went five and a third, two runs, 11 strikeouts, another double-digit strikeout game. And the 11th win, again, are wins and losses really the best way to judge a pitcher at this stage? Probably not. A career high in wins, though, now. He had he was 10-5 and in 2021 when he had that sub-3 ERA, and all of the starting pitchers that year were tremendous. This is now a career-best wins for him. He comes out of that game with the win. He is now 11-8 and on the year. He's been as good as anybody in baseball since the All-Star break. Then on Sunday, down 4-2, Adrian Hauser had to exit the UCL ligament or in his elbow. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of CLs. He has a UCL situation. He left after the second inning and given up four runs. How about Bryce Wilson? Did we not talk about him on Friday? Was it Friday's podcast or Monday's? We were talking about him as kind of an unsung hero of this team and of the bullpen. A guy who they signed who is coming off of a year in Pittsburgh last year where he had an ERA in the mid-fives, had a negative war. When you looked at his numbers last year for the signing and you kind of thought, all right, maybe you throw him a waiver and see how he does in spring training. And maybe he's a guy you can eat up some innings when you're down by six or seven runs. And that was kind of his initial role on this team when they were down six to one, seven to one. Get him in there so he can eat up a couple innings and you save your high leverage arms. The more he's been productive, though, the higher leverage situations he has found himself in. He's a bridge guy. If they need somebody early or if they need someone in the sixth inning, if the pitch count for the starter is a little too high by the fifth inning, he's a guy you feel comfortable with now in the fifth or sixth inning. He's gotten several saves this year as the guy in extra innings, and you know how tough that is when you start out there with a runner on second base, the ghost runner at second base. 
he has been surprisingly effective. He went out and ate up four innings, scoreless, 53 pitches out of the bullpen. He is a former starter, but he's not stretched out like that right now. To give you four scoreless on 53 pitches to keep them in it, and then they end up turning the corner in the sixth inning. Another crooked number, this time a seven-run sixth inning. Again, Rowdy Telez got it started with the two RBI double that tied the game. Carlos Santana took a walk. Sal Freelich had a big hit. Marcana had two hits in the inning, two driven in with his second hit. Eventually, the get-up 9-4. to four. We did see bad Abner Uribe for the first time. We, I've read a lot about Abner on his way up through the minor league system. When they called him up pre-All-Star break and he made his debut against the Reds, or was that right after the All-Star break? One of those. Either right before or right after. Remember, they played the Reds right before the All-Star break and right after the All-Star break. I think it was the series right before the All-Star break. You read about him, and his numbers in the minor leagues were fabulous, and you read about the 100-mile-an-hour sinker, and he's hitting 102, 103 on the gun. He's got this live-wire arm. The caveat, though, on the minor league scouting report was that from time to time, he would have a little Rick Wild thing vaunt to him where it was ball eight, ball nine, ball 13. He would have an inning like that. We had not seen that yet. We saw it yesterday. They were up nine to four. He goes in the seventh inning. He walked two guys, couple of wild pitches, runs coming in, bases still loaded. All of a sudden, it's a nine to six game, and the bases are juiced, and it's the middle of that Padre order. Hobie Milner, tip your cap to him too. Put him in the same boat as Bryce Wilson yesterday. He comes on 9-6. to six. Things are unraveling a bit. Got a bunch of guys on. He doesn't give up another run. The Brewers tack on a run to get a 10-6 to six lead, and they end up getting a win. Bryce Wilson gets the win. He is 6-0, and and he has three saves on the year. They win 10-6 to six and sweep away the Padres for the first time since 2003. Can we talk about the Padres for a second? This has to be, and we talked about it on Friday, between them and the Mets, when you weigh payroll to productivity to the caliber of players they have and what their record is, I cannot fathom, imagine as a Brewer fan, Brewer fans, we wait our whole lives to have a player the caliber of a Juan Soto of our team or a Fernando Tatis or, God forbid, a Manny Machado. Everything, all the theatrics of the Manny aside. Side note, I love, 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 love that Brewer fans have not buried that grudge with Manny Machado. They were booing him at AmFam Field all weekend as loud and as lustily, and I love a lusty boo. They were booing him like it was Game 7 of the 2018 NLCS all over again. I appreciate people that cannot bury it. <laughs> and we are not a fan base that can do that. People don't forget. The Brewer fan base did not forget. All of the other stuff that we hate Manny Machado for aside, he is an MVP caliber player. Brewer fans, we if we get one guy like that in the middle of our order, you cherish it. A guy like Prince or a guy like Brawny back in the day, one of those type of players. Imagine having not one, not two, not three, but four MVP candidate caliber players in the middle of your order and you're seven or eight games under 500 and not going to make the playoffs. How is that possible? When their lineup came out on Friday, you kind of knew what it was if you follow baseball, you're in fantasy baseball. When they put the lineup graphic up side by side and you look at Fernando Tatis batting second into Manny Machado, into Juan Soto, into Xander Bogarts, who was MVP caliber for the Red Sox for so long before signing that huge deal in San Diego. How in the world is this team not winning games? I do not understand it. Crazy to think about. I would, if I were a Padre fan, if I were a San Diego, I'm very angry. San Diego, it's ons. San Diego ins. Yeah. San Diego ons. Sa- San Diego ons. San Diegans. 
San Diegans. Very angry. If I were a Padre fan and you were a diehard, all of that money put in and almost no return for what you have invested, what the owners have invested financially. Nuts. Also, shout out to another rising star in the Brewer bullpen, Trevor McGill. They traded for him for a player to be named later early in the year. He had been up and down Major League, Minor League, Major League, Minor League. With the stuff he has before this most recent call-up, which happened in mid-August, with the stuff he has, I remember watching him early in the year and thinking, how is he not better? Kind of like the Padre lineup. When he was on the mound in April here and there and May here and there and June here and there as he was on the bus between Nashville and Milwaukee and he was hitting 100, 101 miles per hour on the gun, but he was giving up a ton of runs and a lot of hard contact. I thought, how does this guy have this good of stuff and just gets knocked around? I figured it must have been location. He must be just too much in the middle. You hear it a lot. 100 at this stage of the game in 2023, 100 miles per hour. If you were throwing mid to upper 90s in the early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, Almost unhittable. Now, batters are more accustomed to it. They've seen it more in the minor league level coming up through the system. And if you leave it in the middle or you leave it in a hot zone for a hitter, it doesn't matter if it's 92 or 102. They're probably going to get a bat on it. It must have been location. He's changed a few things up. I've heard on a different broadcast, on the radio broadcast and on the TV broadcast, that he's throwing some weird combo now of a knuckle slider almost or a knuckle curve that's still hitting upper 80s, low 90s. Whatever he has done, he looks like a different pitcher. All of a sudden, he's spotting that fastball more on the corner, and that breaking pitch has batters very uneasy. And when you have a batter uneasy, speaking from no experience, when you have a batter uneasy about your breaking stuff landing for strikes. Then you zip 100, 100, and 102. The Brewers have two flamethrowers in Uribe and McGill. McGill, since he got called back up on the 16th of August, has pitched seven and a third out of the bullpen, made six appearances, and has not given up a run. He had scoreless inning to wrap it up on Friday and two scoreless innings to wrap it up yesterday. And I don't know if you saw on the TV broadcast, he had a Christmas story, only I didn't say fudge. Only I didn't say fudge. He got that last out, and he went, bleep you, San Diego, bleep you. I had to do a little digging, and the group text helped me with this. I guess he got drafted by the Padres, because that started to make the rounds among Brewer Twitter of him mouthing that. They showed it on the Bally Sports broadcast. And you had to wonder, wow, there's got to be something going on there, right? <laughs> there has to be some reason he hates San Diego so much. I guess they drafted him. Maybe he didn't have a good experience through their minor league system. He let it all out, though. He let his inner demons out after that last strike. You throw him, though, into the mix. You've already got Devin Williams, all-star. Yoel Piams gave up a couple of runs on Saturday. First time in a while he'd given up a few runs. His ERA is a little over two now. You've got Piams. You've got Piguero, who seems to be straightening it out a bit. Abner Uribe, not good on Sunday, but overall has been very effective. 1.93 ERA, throwing 100 miles an hour plus. Now you add Bryce Wilson and McGill. They're throwing a ton of different arms on you with a lot of different styles coming out of that Brewer bullpen. They wrap up the series with an eight-game winning streak. Should we play a little Brewers Brewer? Let's just get a little turn up the heat. This is the best baseball they've played all year. This is the best that we've seen this team look the entirety of the year. Cue the music. Remember we said... A lot of different times on this podcast. Imagine with this pitching, if they could hit consistently. Well, on this run, on this current streak, they are hitting more consistently. Just drink it in. Could you imagine hitting this in a celebration in late October? We need to bring these things back. We need to bring back the era of corny, team-themed music 
team-themed songs and music videos. I think this is mid to late 80s. They had a couple of jams back then. What band is on this? But it has been a lot of fun, and they've been hitting in this run. These are the kinds of runs. We discussed this coming out of the Rangers series last week, Monday, when we talk about just get in. You just never know when a team that has been awful, dreadful offensively for most of the year. April, they were good. And basically since then, it's been the pitching and a little bit of time leading that's carried them in May, June, July, until this run now in mid-August. You just never know when a major deficiency is going to become a positive for how long has this been going on now? A week and a half? You get on a run like this in the playoffs, and you can beat anybody. They scored nine runs, six runs, and six runs against Texas. They scored seven runs and eight runs and two wins against Minnesota. Seven, five, and ten with three crooked innings Friday, Saturday, Sunday against the Padres. Now you get set for a showdown at Wrigley. But you have some extra space now. When this run started all the way back to the beginning of the road trip against the White Sox on August 11th, I want to say on that podcast, we broke down what the Brewer upcoming schedule was and the tough teams in L.A. and Texas and first place twins and San Diego. Their record stinks, but they are talented. We compared that to what the Cubs had, and the Cubs had the Royals, and they wrapped up a series with the Pirates in Pittsburgh. They won three out of four. At that time, the Brewers were two up or two and a half games up. If you're honest, which I try not to be, every day I wake up and say, let's not be honest today. At the beginning of that, And then looking to this day today, on the 28th, when this series will be getting underway at Wrigley Field tonight, when you looked at how different the schedules were, I thought if you can just maintain that two or two and a half game lead, in my heart of hearts, I probably thought, yeah, you might be tied. You may be tied or a half game up or a half game back or a game up or a game back when these teams hook up at Wrigley. During that run, even with how bad the L.A. series was, During that little window, not only did the Brewers maintain, they added to their lead. It was a two or a two and a half game lead at the beginning of that White Sox series. It's a four game lead entering play tonight. Second to last series between these two teams. Last series at Wrigley. It starts 7.05 tonight, 7.05 tomorrow, 120. I think you like what your pitching matchups are. You're going to see Burns and Woodruff tomorrow on Wednesday. You've got your two aces going during this series, and you start with Miley tonight. And Miley's matchup is against the Cubs' worst pitcher in their rotation, Jamison Tyone. Tyone's been really bad in Chicago, had a good year in New York, was a 14- or 15-game winner with an ERA a little under four last year for the Yankees. That is not translated with a free agent contract in Chicago. So you like that Miley is at least matched up with the worst of the pitchers for the Cubs. Maybe gives you an edge. Miley might be looking for some revenge, too. Miley was in Chicago, injury-plagued year last year. He knows what pitching in Wrigley is all about. He was in Cincinnati for a few years there as well, as with the Brewers in 2018. Miley versus Tyone tonight. Then you've got Burns versus Steele. Steele's had a very successful season for the Cubs. And then Woodruff versus old friend, the old professor, Kyle Hendricks, who, again, is pretty solid this year, and the Brewers have had difficulty with him in the history in his history in Chicago. That's how things line up. I'm not going to get greedy. I'm not going to count any chickens here. However, if you look at this series, you have a four-game lead going into it, six-game lead now on the Reds, and seven better in the loss column the Reds. The Reds are fading a touch. If you can win the series, you would have a five-game lead entering Labor Day weekend with a month to go. That doesn't mean you've won. We saw that in 2014. 
we saw how that all played out in 2014. And I think it was around this time they played a hapless Cubs team at Wrigley and they lost that series or maybe got swept in that series. And that's what was the first little break in the 2014 team that ended up unraveling the entire thing. We do have a long way to go. If you win this series, though, if you sweep, if you sweep the series, again, not counting chickens, if you sweep the series, you would have a seven-game lead on the Cubs with, what, 34 games left? Again, it doesn't mean you're hanging a banner for the NL Central. It just means you have a ton of cushion. Win this series and have a five-game lead as you come back home to take on the Phillies Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's a tough matchup, too. Cubs schedule does get a bit harder after this series. This is a big series. When you look the rest of the way, though, the winning percentage of the teams they're going to play is lower than the winning percentage of the teams the Brewers will play. Phillies are pretty hot, too. They don't have an eight-game winning streak like the Brewers do, but they're on one of those. I've won seven of nine or seven of ten, and they are firmly in a wild-card spot. They'll be at AmFam Field Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then you go to Pittsburgh. You go to New York. The Yankees, like the Padres, underachieving with a big payroll. You've got the Marlins at AmFam Field. They are fading in the wild-card race. That Nationals team, Brewers have the Nationals in mid-September. They're they're a little froggy. I don't like that. I don't like when a team that's 15 games under 500 is giving a lot of top-tier teams difficulty. They've got a little spark to them. Then you're in St. Louis, in Miami, before you wrap up with that six-game homestand with the Cardinals and the Cubs at the end of September. Massive series starts tonight. 7.05 first pitch again. Wade Miley takes on Jameson Tyone tonight. Let's talk about the preseason finale. Lambeau Field. This is the Milwaukee game. I think the Milwaukee season ticket holder preseason game. What a lovely day. Overcast, had a little fall feel to it at Lambeau Field, I am sure. And it was pretty good. Jordan Love, again, looked pretty good. 9 of 15, 63 yards, and a touchdown. He ends his preseason, three touchdowns, no turnovers, and 65% on his passes. He did miss another deep ball, this one to Christian Watson. Watson did get his hands on it. He had to come back or slow up to go and get it. But he got his hands on it. Should have been about a 30-yard completion. He dropped it. If Love hits him in stride... It's a 60-yard touchdown. That's the type of speed we know that Watson possesses. He's got the afterburners. He's got that elite X button. And he just hung it up there a little too high. He's going to miss throws as we've been over. He's not going to hit every throw. Rodgers didn't hit every throw. Rodgers barely completed any deep balls last year. If we're comparing what we need Jordan Love to do this year with what Rodgers did just last year, he just has to hit a few more passes. Honestly, Rodgers, for being a four-time MVP... We don't know if Love can ever ascend to that type of level, to 2019, 2020 Rodgers level, or 2021 Rodgers level, or 2014 or 2011 Rodgers level. If Love is just solid and moves the ball and doesn't turn it over and completes a few deep balls here and there to stretch the defense out, that's going to be better than what Rodgers gave you in 2022. That was Rodgers, would you say his worst year? Statistically, it was. qbr rise it was in 2022. Just need him to be a little better than that. 9 of 15 with that touchdown. It was a beautiful back shoulder to Watson for the touchdown. That looked reminiscent of Rodgers to Devontae. They ran that a lot when they were just outside or just inside the 10. Good connection there for the touchdown. Three touchdowns, no turnovers. Like we said on Friday or last Monday, he hasn't given us any reason to doubt him. You know what I mean? It's not like he went out there over the course of three preseason games and they didn't move the ball and he was turning the ball over and there were some real panicky questions about what this guy is going to do in the regular season. He was solid. He moved the ball. He ran the plays. He missed a few throws. He made a few throws. Didn't turn the ball over. 
There's a lot to like about what we saw in the preseason from Jordan Love. Sean Clifford, again, solid. And Alex Magoo, the USFL MVP. I don't think they're going to carry two quarterbacks or three quarterbacks. But Magoo hit that pass on the near sideline, that bomb. It was a beauty that set up the go-ahead touchdown late to give the Packers the win, 19-15. to Again, Emmanuel Wilson had a nice day. You hope that he can maybe carve out a niche on the practice squad. 17 carries, about 50 yards on the day. Malik Heath had four more receptions. That's one to watch for. Toure had two catches, 16 yards. Musgrave had a couple of catches. And, of course, Watson had the touchdown on Saturday. It all wraps up a 19-15 winner, and the Packers end the preseason at 2-1. and one. And now we have a full week and Labor Day weekend. Then next week, Thursday, the season kicks off. I still can't believe we're living in a world where the Detroit Lions, the Detroit Lions, are going to open uh, be on opening night. Clearly, the Chiefs are the headliner, the defending Super Bowl champs. They're at their place. It's going to be a big celebration at Arrowhead on Thursday. It's just wild to me that we're living in a world right now where the Lions are the favorites to win the NFC North. They haven't won it since 1993. And they're on the featured game that opens the entire NFL schedule. I already am going to put a bet in there on Chiefs minus six. I'm banking on no Super Bowl hangover for them at home. And I think we're going to talk more about this when we get to next Friday's podcast before the opening of the regular season. There are some team season win total bets where I'm going to bet on some regression, and I'm going to bet on regression for two teams in the NFC North. There are a few team win totals that I really like. We'll talk about that next week. There's also a Jordan Love prop bet that I really am optimistic about. We'll also discuss that on next Friday's podcast. That's where we're at, though. Season starts next Thursday. Packers-Bears next Sunday. Preseason in the books. With that, let us continue on. Our countdown of my personal top five Packer Bear games of all time in my lifetime. Number five we did last week. We had the audio from Dick Stockton and Matt Millen circa 1995. Oh, you know what I didn't get up? We'll see if I can do it here quick. Let's see if I can multitask. I did get an email about the podcast last week. Let's see. Yancey, Thig Ben. Drop That game last week we talked about, number five, the five-touchdown Favre game coming off of a week where he looked like he had fractured his ankle. He had a high ankle sprain, and it looked like he was not going to play. He ends up playing and putting up historic numbers that day. That was November in 1995. I had an emailer say, don't forget that season ended with the Yancey Thigpen ghost drop in the end zone. 1995 was their first division title since the 70s. I'd have to go look. I'll never forget. That Steeler game, that last game or the Christmas Eve game, whatever it was, of the regular season at Lambeau Field, they won that game. That got them the division title. My family, we went to, in Sheboygan, we went to Yonkers downtown because they were advertising, if the Packers win, we will have NFC Central championship paraphernalia right away. We'll have it right away an hour or two after the game ends. They win the game. We go to Yonkers, and I, like a lot of people, got that very basic. Remember how basic it was, that 1995? I've got it in a basement somewhere. That 1995 NFC Central Division Champion hat. It was a white hat or a cream hat with a green bill, and it literally just had the G logo and said Central Division Champions. There was no pizzazz. There was no rah-rah about it. Let me see if this one's going to play clean here. The cheese heads. They're oh, this is the this is the ESPN. Is this one gonna be the one I want? But right now, the Steelers have one more opportunity. It is fourth down. Here fourth it is. Down for a title. 
and a week at home. Snow flying. O'Donnell shotgun throws as a man dropped. It is dropped. Yes, he sinks in. Had it. And he dropped it. It could not have been more wide open. No, no one in the world. That may have only come through one speaker, by the way. Do not address to your earbuds if you were listening to the podcast on your earbuds or whatever. That might have been a mono recording. This is what happens when you do things on the fly. Yancey Thigpen, who at the time was a top-tier Pro Bowl-level wide receiver, and Neil O'Donnell was a very good quarterback for the Steelers at that time until they got to the Super Bowl. Was it that year they went to the Super Bowl? Then it must have been. That was the year before Packers lost in the NFC Championship game that year, and it was Steelers-Cowboys. And Neil O'Donnell threw those two interceptions to Larry Brown that basically hit Larry Brown right between the two and the four, and Larry Brown carried that to a Super Bowl MVP and then a massive contract, I want to say, with the Raiders that following offseason. What a moment that was, though. Yancey, the ghost of Lombardi, just knocking that ball out of his hands. There wasn't a soul around him for three yards on either side. I had an emailer, though, remind me that that's how that season would end up in December at a snowy and muddy Lambeau Field. All right, let's get on to number four, my fourth favorite in my lifetime, Packer-Bear matchup. I'm going to take you to opening night, 2018, Sunday night football, year one of the Matt Nagy era in Chicago, year one of Mitch Trubisky or year two of Mitch Trubisky with Matt Nagy, the first time they had been comboed up, under the lights at Lambeau, Aaron Rodgers goes down. Here is the clip from Al Michaels. He gets crumbled by Khalil Mack. Remember the beginning of this game? This was the offseason. The Bears got Khalil Mack, and Mack was a menace. I've never seen a defensive player in a single game impact a game the way that Khalil Mack did that night. He had multiple sacks. He had a fumble recovery. He had an interception return for a touchdown once Deshaun Kaiser got in. Just a maniac all the way around. Here's where Rodgers went down. Look out. Down he goes at the 25-yard line. Roy Robertson Harris, number 95, with the sack. And that is a sight that has everybody's heart stopping at Lambeau Field. Ooh. Rest of the game and take a look at this. This just happened. Rodgers came out of the tent. And that's about as bad a sight as any Packer fan can see. The second he went down and was grabbing at that knee, even though he limped off kind of under his own power, that moment of the instant grab of the knee, then he limps off and you think, okay, maybe, maybe he'll be okay. Please, little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus, please. Then they come back from commercial break, and that's the tail end of that audio clip where Al Michaels is talking about him being on the cart, and it just is, oh, God, the season's over. <laughs> it's week one and the season's over. And I remember being on Twitter and Facebook that night, and Bears fans are just doing the cha-cha. They're doing the lambada. The offense looked innovative with Matt Nagy. They were trying a lot of trick plays. They emptied the playbook that night. Mitch looked okay in the first half. They had a 20 to nothing lead over the Packers at Lambeau, and Rodgers was down and out, and Khalil Mack was wrecking the Packer offensive line. They were throwing, speaking of division championships, Bears fans were throwing a division championship parade on social media 25 minutes into the year. Rodgers comes out of the locker room in the second half, has his helmet on. It still took a while for them to get in gear. It was a 22-3 bear lead at the start of the fourth quarter, and that's when the comeback got underway with 14 minutes left. A beauty to Geronimo Allison, who might have had his best game as a Packer that night. 39-yard touchdown pass. One coverage. 
Rodgers dancing, throwing for the end zone, and it is holding. Touchdown, Geronimo Allison. On the button, just a dot from Aaron Rodgers. Elite deep ball down the sideline. Allison able to hang on to it. At that point, you're thinking, gosh, 20 to 10. We've got 14 minutes left in the game. They're in this thing. Moments later, after the defense got a stop, Rodgers to Devontae Adams, capping a five-play, 75-yard drive. Nine yards. In the pocket. Steps up. Shoots it to Devontae Adams. And Adams dives for the end zone. Touchdown. All right, we're within three. 20 to 17. And if you were on Twitter or Facebook, you could sense the Bears fans that moments later were having the time of their lives or earlier having the time of their lives. Things are getting a little tense. Things are getting a touch puckered, if you will. The Bears, to their credit, after that Devontae touchdown, they rip off a six-minute drive, seven-minute drive that ends in a field goal, though. Again, Packer defense, sort of an unsung hero in that second half because the story was Rodgers coming back on that knee injury and leading the offense. The defense really didn't give up much. They only gave up a field goal early third quarter and the late field goal fourth quarter. That made it 23-17. Then we get the crossing route to Randall Cobb. Graham's been awfully quiet. Rodgers surveying, fires. That's caught Randall Cobb into Chicago territory. Randall Cobb inside the 20-yard line. Randall Cobb is going to score. 75 yards. That is crazy. And he is making play after play after play. Crosby for the vital extra point. Chicago led 20 to nothing at the half. This leads to one of my favorite clips of all time. I don't know why people do this. You could never explain it to me why people film themselves watching a football game for their reaction. I'm glad they do. I don't get it, but I'm glad they do. There was probably a 13- or 14-year-old Bears fan or 15-year-old Bears fan that was recording himself watching this game. There's actually a longer cut of him being that guy celebrating Rodgers goes down, Mitch looks great, Khalil looks like he's Lawrence Taylor reincarnated, and he's having a great time, and slowly his mood starts to change. And then after the Cobb touchdown, he is haunted by the ghost of Cobb in 2013, and he gives us this gem of a clip. It's Randall Cobb again! Basically in tears, it's Randall Cobb again. We used that clip on the B93 morning show after every Randall Cobb touchdown when we played highlights of a victory on Monday morning or Tuesday morning or whenever. If there was a Randall Cobb touchdown catch, we always used that. It's Randall Cobb again. The defense has to get a stop, though, and they do at the end as they finally put some pressure. Clay Matthews puts pressure on Mitch Trubisky late. A penalty on Clay extended the game. They get the stop, though, on the subsequent set of downs, and they win 24-23. to The momentum swing and the Hulk Hogan coming up after getting beat down and being injured, coming back out and getting his team going again, it led to one of, I think, the funniest Aaron Rodgers post-game interviews of all time where he is so clearly zooted out of his brain on painkillers. The man is on Mars. Somehow he puts together a semi-intelligent response to these questions. But when she asks him what was the issue and he says, it was my knee, it makes me laugh to this day. What was the injury? My knee. Um, You know, I just felt something in it. Just had a hard time putting weight on it. Uh, 
Doc and I had a conversation there. You know, we did the test. I told him I was going back. I can recall after that game ended, and it's one of my favorite things to do after any Packer-Bear game where the Packers are victorious, but especially the way that one happened where everything was going the Bears' way and they felt like it was finally their time and they had the head coach that was moving over after quarterback coaching and offensive coordinating for Pat Mahomes in Kansas City. We got this innovative head coach finally, and we've got this dynamic quarterback. We've got some talent around him. We make a trade of all of our first-round picks for the next quarter century to get Khalil Mack, but it's paying off. Look at how good he is. And Rodgers goes down. The division could be ours. All of that in the first 20 minutes, only to have Rodgers (laughs) come back out hit a couple of touchdown passes, a crossing route to Randall Cobb, a stop at the end, and the Packers win 24-23. Now, you do have to note, and why this would not be higher on my list, is that the season ends up being a mess. This was Mike McCarthy's last year. This is where you could just tell there was a schism between Rodgers and McCarthy. They didn't want to be working with each other anymore. Rodgers didn't want to be working with McCarthy. I guess I don't know if McCarthy felt that way about Rodgers. I don't know if we'll ever find that out about the 2018 season, how McCarthy really felt about Rodgers. He's had his chances in interviews to discuss that. He always takes the high road, Coach Mack does. Not that Rodgers has said anything about it either. It was just obvious. The body language was obvious. So many raising his hands and saying, what the bleep to the sideline after an incomplete pass, didn't like the play calls. You could make a case that the way Rodgers played that year and the way he handled himself and carried himself after that game is what ends up getting McCarthy fired midseason. For that reason, and the way the Packers season went, and he gets fired and they don't make the playoffs, and then the Bears do win the division. That did lead to the double doink, though, in the playoffs, which was also fantastic. The way the season went maybe changes where I would put that one, where I would rank that one maybe a little higher if things went differently for the rest of the year. In that vacuum, though, on opening night, it was just such a tasty moment, and I could not get 670 the score, the big talk station, the sports talk station in Chicago. That and ESPN 1000, 670 is always my go-to, though. After a brutal bear loss at the hands of Green Bay and the way that went, I could not stream that station fast enough and dine on the tears of Bears fans who couldn't believe the about face and what had happened that night. If you've never done that, do it. It is a lot of fun when you win a game or your team wins a game. You didn't win the game. When your team wins a game and it's a big game against a rival. I've done that a few times with the Cowboys, too, where the Packers beat the Cowboys. I'll never forget that Matt Flynn comeback when Rodgers was hurt in 2013. And Flynn led that comeback in Dallas when they were down three touchdowns. And they came back and won that, getting a couple of Romo picks at the end of it. I got on the Dallas Sports Radio, too, to listen to the reaction from their fans on that. I listened to 670 the score for about an hour after that game wrapped up in 2018. That is number four. Number five, the far five touchdown game, 1995. Number four, the Rodgers, it's my knee. <laughs> Come back on opening night in 2018. We will have number three for you on Friday. We'll also obviously recap. A critical series between the Brewers and Cubs. We'll have that on Friday's podcast and get you set up for a Phillies weekend at AmFam Field. Have a happy, safe work week. We'll chat with you then.